Welcome to Me and the Geek. I'm me, Joel Sharpton. You can find me on Twitter at The Rogue's Life, and you're listening to Me and the Geek. Once upon a time, Marvel Studios decided that they could make their own movies. The idea was we still own the rights to a handful of characters. Why don't we tell the stories like we know they deserve to be told? We'll partner with other movie studios for the financing and the distribution, and we can tell these stories the way they're meant to be. We think they'll be more successful that way. Lo and behold, they were. Iron Man, Iron Man 2, The Incredible Hulk, and Thor all really hit home with the public. And then Captain America, the first Avenger, just before they all got to team up on the big screen with the Avengers. Now, we've already talked about that movie uh, about a week ago or so with uh, Matt. These fingers crossed paprika burgers. Big day today. Jamie gets his exam results. I hope he's done okay. He's worked so hard. So I'm making my paprika burgers for when he gets home. They were lucky last time. I add red onion and paprika to the mince. Then I top with jalapenos. Well? Make your own burgers with our Tesco finest Aberdeen Angus beef. Food Love Stories, brought to you by Tesco. Bennett, right here on Me and the Geek. Right now, though, we're going to be discussing the new film, Avengers Age of Ultron. Kyle Sweeney joined me, and the conversation was so good, we sort of let it get away with us. Uh, so we ended up making this a two-parter. The next Avengers movie is going to be part one and part two, released a year apart. We're not going to wait a, a year in between these episodes, but we wanted to get to the first half of this conversation right now. So uh, if you've seen Avengers Age of Ultron, then this is for you. If not, we talk for a few minutes here at the top of this episode about spoiler-free stuff, but very quickly we'll give you a warning and then get to the details. So, uh, listen at your own risk. (laughs) But now, without further ado, it's me, Joel Sharpton, and Kyle Sweeney. It's me and the Geek talking Avengers Age of Ultron. So now we have both seen the Avengers Age of Ultron, the second uh, massive superhero team-up in the ongoing Marvel Cinematic Universe, and that's what we're here to talk about today. I've got my trusty sidekick for MCUSODES, Kyle Sweeney. Kyle, how are you doing? I'm feeling very, very pumped. I'm ready to get into it. All right. So I thought the first thing we would do is let's just give a few minutes here of non-spoiler territory. Let's, for the two people who have not seen it by the time this episode uh, is in the feed, what, uh, what did you take away from it? How successful was it? Uh, is it a fitting follow-up to the biggest superhero movie of all time? It's a different movie than Avengers 1 was. I mean, again, we've We've had another, what, 10 hours of movies since Avengers. So a lot has sort of evolved and moved on. And of course, we're building towards Infinity War. It's, I think, a nice change to what's come before. But it also, I mean, it is jam-packed to the gills with stuff. It it felt like a breakneck pace throughout the entire thing. uh, And it was covering a lot of ground. But I I, kind of wanted to slow down a little bit, which is kind of crazy to say after going to see almost a... What, a two-and-a-half-hour movie? Yeah, it's, it's two hours and 20 minutes and change before you get to the credits. I think that, absolutely, we heard rumors that there was a, a three-hour cut, a three-and-change cut originally of this film that Joss Whedon had put up before he began to whittle it away. And honestly, I thought, well, I'm, hey, I'm glad that he's cutting to the bone, and I'm glad that he's leaving us you know, with the essential storytelling material. But having seen it now... I would have gladly had another half hour or so. Definitely. 
definitely. So overall, I'll say this, non-spoilers, and then we're going to really start breaking this thing down. If you have not seen the movie yet, if you've enjoyed any of the Marvel films so far, and I mean any of them, including or not the original Avengers movie, I'd strongly suggest this one. Pretty much every major player in the Marvel Cinematic Universe has some moment or reference in this film. So no matter who your favorite hero or villain is, there's at least a nod, probably. And when you combine it all, I was just amazed at the ingenuity and the successful nature of the now Disney storytelling formula. They really, and maybe they can't make a transcendent story because it is so engineered. But I tell you what they do. They make a great story every single time. Definitely. And I think, I think a lot of credit here goes to, to Whedon for writing, again, jam-packing everything in there, but also doing things in a smart way, the way he introduces some characters, the way, but like just the certain turns that happen, the way characters are handled feels smart and grown up. And I was expecting a lot more comic book convention stuff to pop up, but he does it in a way that I think is is earned within, uh, and of course, Marvel Cinematic Universe is a, it's a comic book universe, but it's a, it's a movie first. It's for a broader audience, and I think he's accomplished it in a way that's going to, you know, sell this to the broad audience as well as uh, certainly support all the, all the geeks who know the source material as well. So everybody kind of wins, I think. So there's our non-spoiler talk. If you haven't seen this thing, you're wasting your time. Get out there right now and, uh, and go see it. Uh, now we're going to start breaking it down. So if you have not watched the movie, this is the time to turn off your podcast app and save this until a later date after you've joined us in the bliss that is post-Avengers Age of Ultron. All right, Kyle, let's start with, uh, why don't we start with the big uh, characters? Let's go and break down the actual Avengers team. Let's talk about how uh, they were used in this film and, and whether we're satisfied with their story progression. Let's start uh, with the guy that doesn't have his own uh, film franchise right now. Uh, let's, let's start with the Incredible Hulk, Bruce Banner and Mark Ruffalo. For me, I loved Ruffalo in the first Avengers. I think he delivered uh, a great version of Banner as well as the version of the Hulk we got, which was funny and angry. But now here we are in Avengers 2. And yeah, he does, he does some pretty uh, amazing stuff. We get more so than the first Avengers to see the darkness. Uh, Bruce Banner is, is fighting to keep locked up. There's, uh, what is it, uh, Project Veronica that is essentially the Hulkbuster that he's helped build to try and keep him in check. But we also get a lot more of him doing science stuff, which is great because he's he's helping with uh, Tony Stark's AI development. Well, the, let's start, let's start at the very beginning of the film and where we find Banner and what he's been used for uh, with this Avengers team. The, the first thing that I'll say is I loved the fact that these Marvel films continue to show that we are missing stories in between films. That we've got a TV series. We're going to have multiple TV series uh, that are directly connected to the main franchise. And then we've also got this sort of pocket universe going on with the Hell's Kitchen stuff with Daredevil now. And all of those are going to tie in a little bit. But even so, there are adventures with our main characters that aren't worthy of telling a main film. That's what the Marvel Cinematic Universe is telling us. When, when we see the Avengers at the beginning of this, they're attacking Baron Von Strucker's uh, Hydra base. And of course, if you watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you know that Coulson is the one that gave them the intel uh, that this was the place where the scepter is. This is the place that they needed to go and hit. But 
the implication is that this is one of many missions that this exact lineup has gone on in the interim. Hawkeye, Black Widow, Captain America, Banner, uh, Thor, and Iron Man have been together attacking Hydra bases, playing, you know, whack-a-mole with the remainders of Hydra, just like Agent Coulson and his team have been on the small screen. That's an amazing storytelling uh, convention in and of itself, I think. Right, and I imagine all those other missions went pretty smoothly. Yeah, they just crushed them. Uh, but let's, specifically about Banner, though, what we find is that Dr. Banner works by day with S.H.I.E.L.D., or in this case, he works with Tony Stark to better the world uh, on all sorts of different projects. You can feel his fingers have been involved, as you mentioned, with the Hulkbuster outfit, uh, but also on the AI projects. Ultron, we, we sort of get a hint of it very early that this is something they've been poking and prodding at for a while, uh, trying to evolve the Iron Legion protocol to, to the next level. Um, so Banner has been working by day with the science, and then when you need him, you break out the big green monster at night. They call it uh, a code green, right? Right. So I love that. There's, there's several uh, recent storylines in the comics where this is exactly what they've done with uh, Banner. They've used him in the laboratory uh, when he's in his normal human form, and then whenever things get too far gone, they just drop the Hulk down on the problem. I love that idea that they're, they're bringing that to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But we also see that he's developed a, a real burgeoning relationship with Natasha. That's great. And that's one of the relationships that like is loosely set up uh, in the first movie with Black Widow recruiting the Hulk, uh, more or less recruiting Banner um, to come in and, and help search for the Tesseract in the first movie. We get to see Black Widow be the one who can calm down Hulk and turn him back into Banner as, again, part of a, I don't know, hypnosis protocol thing. She's sort of the, the one who can, I guess, create that change, which is really cool to see. Yeah, it, it definitely seemed like, and they didn't, they didn't take the time to really fully explain it. Before we leave Banner, though, uh, let's talk about where he is at the end of this movie. Of course, all the rumors going into the film said that we're going to end up with Hulk in space. We didn't. As a matter of fact, the movie sort of implies that he's just, uh, you know, in the Fiji Islands or something somewhere hiding out. But uh, what we see is Banner in a Quinjet somewhere in the atmosphere. Do you think that we're going to see the Hulk at all before the Infinity Wars? It, it's possible, but let me make one minor correction. It's not Banner in ah. the Quinjet. It's, it's the Hulk sitting Indian style who's silenced the Black Widow video conference or whatever and sits rather calmly as the plane keeps going to destination unknown. I'm sure uh, Bruce Banner had a play in part of that decision, but the Hulk is also the one who's... He, he didn't shrink down and continue to go away. He's still the Hulk, so who knows what's going to happen. I like the idea of sort of a, a little bit more zinned-out Hulk. Um, not necessarily intelligent. I don't like him when he gets too smart, but but that he's... Uh, that he's able to make some decisions that aren't smash. No, you're very, very good correction, and you're absolutely correct. If you look, though, at uh, what Kevin Feige and Joss Whedon and even Mark Ruffalo have all sort of hinted at, there, there do seem to be some, quote-unquote, amazing plans in the future for uh, the Hulk and for Banner. But I, I don't see how you can get him into a solo film or even one where he is a member of a smaller team, or let's say he played a big role in a future Guardians of the Galaxy movie. I don't see that working unless you bring out more of the intelligent Hulk. Maybe you don't have to make him, you know, the Professor Hulk, but 
he has to speak, I think. Right. And as we've seen, he has the ability to speak. He just doesn't necessarily uh, use that a lot. Specifically in this movie, I think he only says, well, maybe he doesn't say anything. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I actually don't think the Hulk has any lines in this movie. Uh, maybe he said Ultron while he was swallowing one of the Ultron heads in the big <laughs> fight. Possibly, possibly. All right, let's let's go to his paramour in this movie. Let's talk about Natasha and uh, the Black Widow. I had a a very intelligent uh, young lady make the comment that she was very upset uh, by Black Widow's portrayal and particularly her storyline in this film. Because it seemed as if the movie was making the following connections. Bruce Banner and Tony Stark are monsters because of what they created. This world-destroying artificial intelligence. But Black Widow is a monster because she's sterile. And because she can't have children. And I, I didn't get that in the film. But after having heard it and then and then watching it with an eye towards that idea, towards that uh, interpretation. I see where I see where she's coming from and I do think it was clumsily handled. I understand why they wanted to introduce the story point of uh, you know the forced sterilization of these black widows. It did seem clumsily connected to Banner's self-loathing and to his and Tony's gigantic mistake that was Ultron. So my read on that, and I, I hear that and can certainly understand that, that perspective, but Black Widow is specifically th- is thinking that she's the monster. It's not that anybody else on the team views her as a monster. It's her starting to have a little bit of self-loathing for being created into this ultimate human fighting machine. That's where being a monster is. There's a little tragedy to it because they took a 16 or 17-year-old girl and sterilized her, that's what's terrible. Not necessarily the fact that she's sterile, uh, but it's the process of creating this Black Widow graduation ceremony, which is, it's uncomfortable and feels terribly sad and tragic, but it, I think it only endears that the character has been through so much. It doesn't necessarily make her weaker, but for the first time, I think, in these movies, we get to see a Black Widow that's not cracking a very dry joke. She's super vulnerable and and I think part of that is this terrible reliving of her past that you know happens through the Scarlet Witch's manipulation. So let's talk about her getting kidnapped uh, at the end of, uh, or, or sort of at the end of Ultron's plan. She's so competent in this film. She is portrayed as every bit the Avenger that Captain America, Hawkeye, uh, even Iron Man is. You know, she's right there in the middle of this team, and she deserves to be there. They all hold her as an equal, and she's shown as an equal on the battlefield again and again and again. Even the line about, I'm always having to clean up after you boys as she picks up the shield. We see that in the trailer even. And then she ends up the damsel in distress. Now, she's saved without any really fanfare at all. But it it did seem strange to me that they fall into the trope of the princess in the castle. See, I read it a little bit differently. The, The Avengers might not have known that that's where... Ultron was completely set up and they wouldn't have had that information without the sort of Morse code created by spare Ultron parts that she managed to put together and get a signal out. There's an element of that that is kind of story plot necessary. Now, yeah, that could have been anybody else, but I think maybe there's a part of that that's like playing into the trope of like damsel in distress while turning it on its head. 
she's against still super capable if a giant eight foot robot with super strength uh grabbed your leg and then held you captive and you're only human I don't view that as a damsel in distress. <laughs> fair, fair enough, fair enough. And you're, and that may be one of those places in the story that could have used with a few extra scenes that ended up in the editing room. They, they weren't absolutely necessary to the pace of the um, film, but in hindsight, they might would have fleshed that out, made it make a little bit more sense. I, I just, it, it boggles my mind. Ultron's been so dead set on the Avengers extinction. What did he want her there for? Just to monologue? Well, he, to? he, he does have uh, at least part of Tony Stark's sort of uh, ego, I think. And I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but because that's there, yeah, I totally buy into the fact that he's, he wants to, he wants to uh, crush them all together as one unit and take everything away from them, which is cool. It's a cool villain thing, uh, but a little too villainy, especially for a super smart AI robot. <laughs> so let's move to the other uh, totally mortal uh, member of the Avengers team, Hawkeye. And we get a lot of information about Hawkeye here. First of all, he is used in the beginning of the story in a very cool way to set up the eventual introduction of Vision. We see him injured in the battle as they take uh, Baron Von Strucker and uh, try to capture the twins. And then he is healed uh, by Dr. Cho. Her specialty is effectively 3D printing tissue. I mean, that's my understanding, right? Sure. Re-molecularizing re, re uh, parts of your body so that they can heal and fantastic speeds. It's, it's modern science uh, gone crazy and, and it's going to change the world. Yeah, this is the next big thing. Uh, but uh, on Hawkeye, he's healed there and then we see him after that we see that he's in contact with someone and uh, he says that it's a girlfriend, but he's very specifically mentioned earlier that he doesn't have one. So we know there's a secret building. Here. Right. And that's, I didn't hear what he was saying on the phone the first time, but the second time I watched it, he was saying, no, I report to you, ma'am. And it sounded like shield esque or military esque uh, the way he was talking to us, uh, who we find out later, his wife. <laughs> what? Who did this? Uh, and children too, no, like multiple children. Yeah. So this is a this is an ongoing. Um, Hawkeye's got a whole another life that we don't know anything about, really. Right. And in the comic books, Clint Barton is kind of a, a an eternal screw up. How he's always playing dumb. Um, and like, so you get this completely different version of Hawkeye that you never, even as a true blue comic book fan, you would never even expect this. And then all of a sudden, like, no, he's actually like. A super great dad who does uh, construction projects in the house. He's always fixing up the breakfast nook or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and it just kind of completely and immediately flips his character. And he's the most connected to humanity, being a human himself and, and having a family that, like, that's why he fights. But, yeah, it was just such a sweet twist. I loved it. I, I loved, by the way, too, his wife has the line when they're alone uh, for the first time. She says, uh, Clint, I'm so... Uh, proud of you and you're avenging. <laughs> this is a guy who literally has been going out and saving the world. Uh, you know, and he's just a man with a bow and arrow, as he says later, too. So so I thought the, the story revelations about him were, were wonderful. I also thought they are setting us up this entire movie to watch Hawkeye die. Right. right? You don't introduce his family and talk about, you know, how underpowered he is. And literally in the opening Gambit action se sequence wound him somewhat mortally only to repair him artificially you're you're seeing him and you've set him up as like oh gosh uh we know people tend to die in these things even if it doesn't last it got me on edge i had a feeling they probably wouldn't 
take out Hawkeye, but you know, you never know with these things. I knew there was a death lingering. Something had to happen. There had to be a cost in this film. Yeah, the Hawkeye stuff was just like, oh no, don't make him any more of a of a lovable, sweet character. Oh, when he has a family, no, don't do this. <laughs> you're you're going so so uh, so that's Hawkeye. Let's move on to let's talk about Iron Man for a minute here. All right, Iron Man, uh, of course, has been sort of the center of this entire franchise. His movie is the one that started the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, in many ways, this is the, the the church that Robert Downey Jr. built because of that, and very obviously, it was a good idea on on Disney and and Marvel's part. They made Iron Man really the center of the first Avengers film. It is an ensemble movie and everybody gets their moment, but that was a very much a Tony Stark story. Knowing that Ultron was going to be a creation of Tony Stark, largely, and it was going to be his uh, belief that the world was not safe, his continued fears uh, of powerlessness in the face of a cosmic invasion, that was going to be the thrust of what got us to this terrible villain that is Ultron. Knowing that going into the movie, I was very worried that this would be, again, a Tony-dominated film. But I did not feel at all that this was a, a Tony Stark or an Iron Man-centric movie. No, I feel like Tony kind of can steal the show a little bit whenever he's on screen and he's being funny. And again, he's kind of a focal point for the Avengers in their sort of self-doubt and mistrust of each other. He's He's the one who's kind of gone rogue and tried to create this super AI. You know, in some ways, he's kind of the villain's godfather here by creating Ultron and being the more the driving force, the passion behind, we need to do this. There's obviously, I think, less of him throughout the movie. And in fact, in Act 3, he's sort of, uh, while helping rescue people, he's running through scenarios of how to stop this giant floating city from destroying the world <laughs> and thinking of all the different sort of scientific ways. So he's not getting in a whole bunch of action in that last uh that last act after everybody the team sort of splits up he's kind of just running through scenarios which is cool uh and you're focusing a lot more on the character moments that are going to pay off for everyone else uh he gets to be a big part of that but also we're not really catching up with him a whole bunch it was a really nice thing to see iron man 3 and that progression still happened and then it's like he's fallen off the wagon as far as like uh, i guess fear um but it is interesting to also see that he has picked the armor back up. We don't get a lot of explanation as to that or why. But he's he is Iron Man, even without a suit of armor. But now he is, you know, back in the suit doing Avengers missions, which is kind of cool. That's my that's my one truthfully biggest gripe with the film is that there is no reason for the Tony Stark and Iron Man that we see at the very beginning of this film. All the other characters make sense with where we left them last. With Tony, we left him a retired Iron Man, satisfied and sort of at peace with the fact that he can't stop every evil in the world and maybe even a little wiser about um, rushing in to uh, boast about what he can fix because of the, the Mandarin fight. And yet here he is right back playing Iron Man, right back playing adventurer, no pepper pots anywhere around. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I understand why they needed it for the story convention, but I think it would have been more interesting. You could even have had that entire Baron von Strucker attack without Iron Man. And then brought him in first, just like you did Banner, not for, we don't want you, Iron Man, we want Tony Stark, the genius, to help us figure out what this staff is and what it can do and what they've been doing with it. Then it makes perfect sense. He's, he's a little bit reluctant hero 
uh, from the beginning, I think would be the way to play that. I think that was just a little clumsily handled. And it's my one big gripe in the middle of a sea of uh, enjoyment. Let me let me pose this. And again, I feel like I'm being an Avengers uh, apologist. <laughs> but uh, imagine that there have been a series of adventures in between these, these movies. Tony Stark sees what happens with the fall of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, and the events of Winter Soldier. Uh, Maria Hill is now working for, for him. Like, I think he's going to get pulled back into the game, uh, whether that's partly his ego, whether it's like, well, there's no S.H.I.E.L.D. Who can do what S.H.I.E.L.D. did? Kind of kick-starting the Avengers back into existence but in a, a way that they're not answering to Fury. I, I could buy that he, you know, there was no money coming in from the crazy S.H.I.E.L.D. bank account anymore, so now you've got Tony Stark bankrolling it. The staff from the first Avengers is there. That's going to get him a little bit more interested. That's going to get him on the team, I think. This is the reason why, Kyle, we need uh, animated series set in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And you could have given us a reason why Tony Stark put the iron... Uh, the Iron Man suit back on. Well, and let's remember, logistically, Iron Man 3 was the last of his original contract, so there was a big possibility he wasn't coming back, so I think they were trying to satisfy uh, the the conclusion of RDJ and the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, just as they were going to back dump trucks full of money uh, back to his house and, and get him back on board for at least the next couple of Avengers. So, you know, keep keep him threaded in. It's very important. And to see him grow into these different ways. So, so let's move over to uh, his uh, Civil War uh, adversary, uh, Captain America. I, you know, there's not actually a whole lot of story progression for, for Cap in this film. The one big thing that we get is that he comes to rest and to peace with who and what he is. He is a soldier. And he is a leader. And he is particularly equipped and particularly able to both stand up for those that are unable to defend themselves and stand against those that would take advantage of uh, of the weak. He knows he has to stay on the front lines because he is that moral compass. Because of the silly fact that he says things like language, we need a guy like that. We need a guy like that at the front who's powerful and who is in the rooms of power helping to make the decisions. With Cap, it's he's had, a, obviously, the most interesting... like progression because he is kind of a static character he's always moral he's always just um he's always going to be the one who does the right thing which i don't know seems like an impossible thing to write but the way that chris evans performs it is very uh genuine and earnest uh and you have the ability to sort of see uh see him as a constant he's providing like sort of a, a a source of reason and 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 leadership that i think is super cool and he um, he's able to like still be a superhero just for having super strength and being a kind of a tactician. Uh, in this movie, he's he's way more of a, a superhero Avenger. The difference between him and Avengers and Winter Soldier, he had sort of become this amazing fighter and and trained very hard. And then now into Avengers Two, he's he's trained super hard, and now he's doing all these cool backflips and he's kicking the shield and he just has. Uh, that's little something special for this big spectacle. I, we've seen, you know, big displays of strength from Captain America in the films before, but the moment in this film where he does the flip over his handlebars and he throws the motorcycle to destroy the tank, I like that's a moment where I'm like, that's Captain America realizing exactly how strong and capable he is, and that's only the kind of thing that you can do 
when you have really been able to explore and and continue to grow your skills. And it's obvious, him more than maybe any of the other main characters, this guy has been busting his butt in between movies. Like, he has been a very, very busy man. He's like my favorite MCU character. And I don't know, that sounds corny because he's Captain America, but like, again, the way he's played, is there's just a, a fine balance that he's striking that I think there's a, there is a dark side to Cap that we haven't really seen yet. But we know that he gets angry when people assume things and, and, and do things that they think are uh, for the co- common good, but create death and destruction in their wake. Uh, we saw it in Winter Soldier, and we saw it here again in uh, Avengers 2. You said he's your favorite character in the MCU. He's absolutely my favorite character now as well. A big part of that is I still think Captain America Winter Soldier is the best film so far in the MCU in my estimation, and so that's part of it. But it is mostly about Chris Evans and his portrayal. He's really amazing in this role. It's something he was born to play. He is channeling so much of classic American um, you know, movie stars through this filter of, I don't know, Atticus Finch in Superman's body or something. It's just amazing. Who cares if Chris Evans was the Human Torch? I don't. I don't care. It's the, he's Captain America. He's Steve Rogers, and uh, I'm super glad he's at least here for another couple of films. So the last member of the Avengers then is Thor, and to me, he's the least utilized of the the main group. He's got a side plot story here uh, where he tries to find out all of the. Uh, the details about the dream that he was given, the vision that he was given from Wanda Maximoff. And I feel like a lot of that ended up on the cutting room floor. We know there were some other uh, images, at least from his time in the well, in the, the, with the water spirits that we saw in the trailers that are not in the film. So we know there's some of that storyline gone. So he goes to see Dr. Selvig. First of all, we get no explanation on how Selvig is sane again. Uh, but we also get a couple of other hints here. We hear that Jane is working on convergence theory. But to me, he is the least used of the main cast. Now, that's not a terrible thing because he's got his own film franchise and he's about to have a big film in Thor Ragnarok. And, and we know that's going to be um, a very heavy storyline. And then he'll feature heavily, I'm sure, in the Infinity War films as well. But I just I did think it was interesting that there wasn't a whole lot of Thor storyline here, even as they brought in the cosmic elements of the Infinity Stones. In a lot of ways, I mean, again, we're probably getting the most truncated version of Thor's uh, B or C plot for this movie, but uh, I think the bulk of it is to introduce the idea and give us some exposition on these Infinity Gems. We get to see, at least in that dream sequence, the the four known current ones sort of exploding, those those gems exploding out of the their shells or their containers, and their uh, it's very strange that a lot of these things are just floating around Earth, with the exception of the one from Guardians of the Galaxy. For the average moviegoer, starting to set up, uh, this is what all that Infinity War stuff's going to be about. Uh, and yeah, sadly, I guess Thor became the the bulk of that. Although we do get some really fun scenes with him. Uh, and his hammer as uh, proving the worthiness of the Avengers. That was a scene that we saw in the trailer, the party scene where uh, all of the different uh, Avengers and and sidekicks are trying to pick up the hammer. We knew that was going to be a fun scene, but even though we had seen hints of it in the trailer, that was one of my favorite scenes in the film. It played wonderfully, and it's only the kind of thing that you can do once you've had these actors together for now 11 movies. And you get to see, like, what is is the off time for these larger-than-life characters look like 
And it looks a lot like us, except now there's a magic hammer that everybody's trying to lift and there's still egos at play. And it's a lot of, uh, again, a lot of fun to watch. And to know that that culminates in a scene at the end with the vision uh, just makes that sort of innocuous party scene all that much more powerful as a setup for that uh, moment where everybody is quite impressed. Yeah, why don't, why don't we move? Why don't we move right there to the vision first? When you saw the the few glimpses that they gave you in the marketing, and there were a few, it looked like wow, they really are bringing the comic book to life in a lot of ways. I loved the look. I thought Paul Bettany was a great casting decision. I thought it was interesting that they were going to tie it in some way to Jarvis. Uh, and then I was worried though. This concept is so comic booky <laughs> and this this film universe has been and I know it's silly to say when we're talking about a movie that holds demigods and giant green monsters and and you know men frozen in time but it has been very grounded the whole series has been very grounded and I wondered was it going to be a step too far to have this flying phasing laser shooting synthesoid red skinned green and yellow costume yeah and he's got a cape and all of these things and and you were just like how is this going to make sense and yet piece by piece by piece joss whedon obviously has a lot of love for this character because he laid the groundwork for him so well in the movie we talked earlier about this the synthetic skin and so they explain this machine and what it does laying the groundwork for the idea that we could create tissue. Then you ha you bring in the idea of the artificial intelligence. You bring in the idea of Jarvis battling with Ultron and, and how is that battle going to go? And you've had Jarvis for five or six movies now as well. So the setup of like the evolution of that uh, Jarvis to something new is yeah completely set up. And then the hammer, which shows none of the Avengers are worthy other than Thor, except maybe who jiggles it. Captain America jiggles it just a little bit. And we think, boy, if anybody ever was going to be worthy, if anybody deserved to hold that unlimited power, it'd probably be Steve Rogers, right? So then when we get this synthesoid, this unknown creature of unimaginable power, when he, when he finally bursts onto the scene and he holds the hammer effortlessly and then returns it to its owner right away, you don't have to be a geek. You don't have to be a nerd. You don't have to know anything about the vision. You understand this is a character which we may not understand, and you may not feel completely comfortable with his portrayal. Maybe it's off-putting in some ways, but this is not a guy we have to worry about. This is not a bad guy. Um, the other thing that's kind of cool is we get one of the gems that is, a, I guess, a key component of the vision. Like, it's placed on his forehead, much like uh, Adam Warlock, uh, which is a big character for the Infinity Gauntlet. Yes! So I think that was, like, a, another super smart way. You don't need to have a weird space guy with orange skin floating in in space who has a gem on his head that's that's a lot to explain there in and of, in and of itself but the idea that we've sort of mashed up i think aspects of this uh adam warlock character with the vision um who is a new being who again owes no particular allegiance to anything but supports life the antithesis of death which is what of course Thanos is uh, courting <laughs> constantly. I think it was just a really smart way. And it makes things a little bit smaller in the MCU, but I think sometimes that needs to happen uh, in order to sort of help set things up and, and tell a compelling story. I think it is a foregone conclusion that we'll meet Adam Warlock uh, and, and all of his uh, different incarnations. I think we'll begin to unravel that in the next Guardians film. And I think there's nobody else to be uh, Star-Lord's father than Adam Warlock. I think anybody else muddies the waters and makes uh, some unnecessary story complications. Uh, I don't think that's the vision. I think the vision has a very big part to play in that. 
but I, I do not believe that, that he will have the whole role of Adam Warlock. I still think we're going to get that character. But I do think you're right in that making it a robot, the way that they introduced it in this, again, it just, it just warms people up to some of these more fantastic ideas. And every single one of these movies just builds on the next one. The other thing that I'm really excited about with, with both Ultron and with Vision is the continued um, uh, expansion of robotics and artificial intelligence in the TV series. Now we're going to get droids and androids and all sorts of cyborgs and everything in between where we've just gotten some hints of cybernetic technology before. I think we're, I, the floodgates will now be open. I think we might see another version of the life model decoy not too uh, far from now. I want to talk about the Maximoff twins for just a second. So, so let's just quickly say this. Were you surprised that Quicksilver was killed? He did seem like for the longest time he was the candidate for death <laughs> that I had sort of prepared myself for like i feel like jeremy renner has a longer contract already signed uh unless it was something that was mutually beneficial for both of them to cut him out uh i thought he was going to be kind of safe despite the fact that they really top loaded him as being the most vulnerable character uh uh, with a family and everything else oh that's gonna really be the worst gut punch at the end if he's dying especially when he's saving the child at the end he turns his back uh towards this onslaught of of gunfire and then uh of course quicksilver is the only one who can push him to safety and at the time i was like oh no we really want to see this quicksilver a little bit more and i personally i like this version better than the uh, days of future past version which was more jokey and uh, you got to see him in that slow-mo a lot more and just causing hijinks and being sort of a uh you know, a, a, a goofy speedster. I felt a lot more for this war-torn country, Eastern European version of Quicksilver and his sister Scarlet Witch, because I think so much of, of Quicksilver is Scarlet Witch. And so if you didn't have that aspect, it's just like, well, we used the character in really name only and power only in Days of Future Past, but here in the, the he had weight and uh, importance and, and still got to, you know, he had some moments where he was funny or I uh, got a good line in, um, but then ultimately with him dying, like it was tragic, but it it made sense, and it it was uh, it was a gut punch that he was willing to sacrifice himself uh, for Hawkeye, quote unquote, the enemy, as well as this other uh, Slakovian boy. <laughs> I forget the name of the country now. Whatever weird made up country this is, I hope it's made up, and I'm not just that uninitiated about the Eastern European bloc here. No, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. It is a made-up country. Sokovia is the name of the uh, of the country that they were looking for there. Um, Days of Future Past used uh, Quicksilver in name, but since they got rid of the angst uh, and all of the, you know, the, the, the uh, cruelty of Quicksilver, they effectively just used the Flash. Meanwhile, uh, Marvel uses uh, Scarlet Witch, but because of the, the, how much they changed her power set, and I think also some of her motivations, to me, they just, they effectively stole Jean Grey. I can, I can see a little bit of that. I think you had to bring, it would be so difficult to introduce, uh, not impossible, but very difficult to introduce, like, she has hex powers, and probability shifts and like what is that versus like oh we do have some pink glowy stuff and you can influence people to have nightmares and like it's enough of a weird witchy thing to sort of serviceably pass uh while keeping her power set 
to have something that has a, a great deal of potential. Um, but she has, she has sort of a, a, a lim- more limited understanding of it. Uh, but we see that certainly grow throughout even just this movie. Again, it's me apologizing for a movie that I'm still very excited to go see three more times in the theater, at least. The one thing that I was super kind of worried about was the combination of having your Quicksilver Scarlet Witch as these Eastern European uh, accents rolling in. I was like, ah, is that going to come off as really strange? That's being more true to the comic book interpretation of them. But is that too much? Are they going to be able to pull that off? Uh, And I think further credit the actor and actress and joss whedon were able to sort of come to something that didn't feel too oddly yes i i I pretty much agree with all of that i the accents were occasionally a little moose and squirrel uh but not terribly not terribly and they they only drifted that way a couple of times um i didn't mind that they killed quicksilver i i i liked the character and i liked the actor in the role i thought i wouldn't have minded having him around in the future but i also know having a speedster makes storylines more complex. Like you have to, you have to suddenly then write your way into, well, why can't Quicksilver just run in and fix this? You know? Well, and who knows? We, again, this film has set up the idea that we have this regeneration thing. Now it seems like Quicksilver's dead. Uh, Certainly when he's like, his body is heaved onto the ship that's taking everybody back to the helicarrier. But um, who's to say that there isn't one person or one you know, sort of shield uh, individual who's going to try and use some Tahiti protocol, perhaps. Or, but I think Quicksilver. Uh, I think we can be officially done with him. Uh, it might be challenging to Scarlet Witch to see her brother come back alive during Infinity War as part of some sort of life gym strangeness. <laughs> that we have not yet seen. All right, that's part one of our conversation about Avengers Age of Ultron. Uh, The next episode will be in your feed before you know it, so just stay tuned. We're going to wrap up uh, with some more in-depth discussion of uh, the overall storyline and where the MCU goes from here. So stay tuned for that. We also, of course, welcome your feedback. You can email us, meandthegeek at teamprocreate.com. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook by searching Me and the Geek. Uh, And, uh, of course, you can review us in iTunes or Stitcher as well. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. Until the next episode, this has been Joel Sharpton alongside Kyle Sweeney as we discussed Age of Ultron, the second Avengers film on Me and the Geek. One, two, three, four. Me and the Geek is a proud member of the Procast Network, a Procreate production. Procreate is a community of artists in film, music, the digital arts, and fine arts that helps them connect and collaborate on projects. You can find out more at teamprocreate.com. Also, be sure to check out one of our other great shows, like Movie Buzzed. The Movie Buzzed podcast is exactly what it sounds like. It's a place for friends to get together, watch a good movie, and catch a good buzz. Every episode, your host, Zach, will be joined by a special guest, or five, to have some fun. Movie Buzzed is where you'll find your friends and a good buzz waiting for you. These fingers crossed paprika burgers. Big day today. Jamie gets his exam results. I hope he's done okay. He's worked so hard. So I'm making my paprika burgers for when he gets home. They were lucky last time. I add red onion and paprika to the mince. Then I top with jalapenos. Well? Make your own burgers with our Tesco finest Aberdeen Angus beef. Food Love Stories. Brought to you by Tesco. Hello? Hi, it's 
Helen from the Dry Cleaners here. We found something in the pocket of the trousers you brought in. Oh, really? What was it? Another pair of trousers. Oh, how'd that happen? Like getting your money's worth? Enjoy the delicious spicy chicken snack wrap. Just one forty nine from the McDonald's saver menu. <laughs> Served after 10.30am, except in selected restaurants, which will serve this from 11am. Price and participation may vary.